Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our Bibles to Joshua chapter 17. Joshua 17, last Sunday we came to an important moment in the life of Joshua, in which uh, as an older man he was instructed by the Lord to begin to divide up the promised land by parcels among the twelve tribes of Israel. Remember that his good friend Caleb from the tribe of Judah came to him and reminded him of a promise that Moses had made to him that he would receive some of the best of the land which he called the hill country. And Joshua, a man of his word, remembered that promise, though it had been made in his presence 45 years earlier. He honored Caleb, and he honored Caleb's promise and gave him the land that he requested. And Caleb, of course, was faithful to go in, as we saw in chapter 15, and drove the Canaanites out of that land and thoroughly took possession of that portion of the promised land. Unfortunately, as we're about to discover, not all of the people of Israel that inherited land were as bold and faithful as Caleb. One such group was the tribe of Manasseh. You remember that among the 12 tribes of Israel that bear the names of Jacob's sons, 10 of them his biological sons, two of them his grandsons that he adopted. It was traditional in the ancient world that the oldest son, and in Jacob's case that was the man Reuben, would receive a double portion of the family inheritance when it was divided. Instead, when Jacob was on his deathbed, He adopted his grandson, Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and they replaced Joseph as the namesakes for the tribe. Now you may be wondering why in the world would Jacob do such a thing? Well, 1 Chronicles 5.1 tells us that the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the sons of Israel. I won't go into the sordid details, but uh, needless to say, Reuben had sexual sin in his life that was so gross that the Lord took his birthright away from him and replaced him with the two grandsons of Jacob, Ephraim and Manasseh. Now you might have heard Manasseh referred to as a half-tribe. The reason for that is that half of them settled on the west side of the Jordan River and half of them on the east side. But they were a large tribe. In fact, they received probably as much or more acreage as any of the twelve tribes. But it wasn't very long after they had received their inheritance that they started to complain that they were not satisfied with their inheritance. Now I know we can't relate in the modern world for people being unhappy with their inheritance. But uh, the Manassites were. And so let's read about it in Joshua 17. I'll begin reading in verse 14. Then the sons of Joseph spoke to Joshua saying, Why have you given me only one lot and one portion for an inheritance? Since I am a numerous people, whom the Lord has thus far blessed. Joshua said to them, If you are a numerous people, go up to the forest and clear a place for yourself there, in the the land of the Perizzite and the Rephim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. And sons of Joseph said, The hill country is not enough for us, and all the Canaanites who live in the valley land have chariots of iron, both those who are in Bethsheen and its towns and those who are in the valley of Jezreel. Joshua spoke to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, saying, You are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one lot only, but the hill country shall be yours, for though it is a forest, you shall clear it, and to its farthest borders it shall be yours, for you shall drive out the Canaanites, even though they have chariots of iron 
And though they are strong, may the Lord add this blessing to the reading and hearing of His Word. Now, the problem that I want to address today is a condition of corporate complacency. Now, there is a word in the Bible related to complacency, but a little bit different. That is the word contentment. The Bible says every Christian should aim to be content. Having food and clothing, the Bible says, let us be content. But the evil twin of contentment is complacency. That is getting to a place in life where you put your life in neutral and coast to the finish. And that can happen not only to individuals, as we saw last week, but it can happen to institutions and it can happen, friends, to churches. And so we don't want that to happen to us, do we? And so let's look first at the cause of corporate complacency. It's in verse 13, where Jeff read a moment ago. Very clearly, the problem that these two tribes had it came about when the sons of Israel became strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. Now, God's instructions about driving out the Canaanites was not vague, was it? He said, get rid of all of them. Don't leave one standing. And yet, here we have again this problem of making peace with the enemy. They were satisfied with partial possession. They had the title deed in their hand, yet they had not truly possessed the land because the Canaanites were still living in much of it. Now, why is that? Well, I think there's two likely reasons. One is simple laziness. To fight the Canaanites meant hard work, and not everyone likes hard work. In fact, they'd been fighting for many years at this point, and they had just apparently had enough. Now, they would have been happy to have the extra land if it were not for the fact that they had to fight for it. And they were not willing to do that. And so instead, they came to peace agreement with the Canaanites and said, look, you can live here as long as you serve us. And I think that's the second reason that they became complacent is they enjoyed having the Canaanites there, quite frankly. They had them do their menial task and they knew that to drive them thoroughly from the land, they'd have to go back to doing the menial task. And, and they, quite frankly, took pleasure in having some of the Canaanites around. Well, there are, of course, many parallels between the promised land and the Christian life. And the first is very obvious, and all of you know this, is that as Christians, we are in a battle, aren't we? The Bible is full of martial imagery, that is, imagery of warfare and of fighting, particularly in the Pauline letters. For example, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, Paul writes to the young pastor Timothy, and he says, Suffer hardship with me. As a good soldier of Jesus Christ, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And so Paul is talking about the Christian life in terms of a soldier who has to discipline himself and be trained and then to go through some very difficult things in completion of his mission. Also in Philippians chapter 2 and in the book of Philemon, Paul refers to those who were fellow laborers in the field, in the ministry with him as fellow soldiers, which means that Paul thought of himself as in a battle, and all of the others around him were in that same battle. So if we're in a battle, if the Christian existence is warfare, a couple of questions come to mind. Who is our enemy? Because to defeat the enemy, we have to know who the enemy is, and why are we fighting? So the answer to the first question, who's the enemy, is found in Ephesians 6. You don't have to turn there. You know this passage likely. Finally, be strong in the Lord, Paul says, and the strength of his might. 
Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of who? The devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now hear this. In addition to all, take on the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So Paul says in a number of ways in those few verses, our enemy is Satan. Satan is not a myth. He's not a metaphor. He is a person. And that person is our enemy. And the systems of the world that he controls are under his power. And that also is an enemy of ours. And there's a third enemy we have. Now we love to blame the devil every time we fail, don't we? Because that takes the onus off of us and puts it on someone outside of us. So we then become victims in our own mind when we fail. Well, the devil made me do it. But the Bible says we have a third enemy. Not only is it Satan and the systems that he controls, it is our very flesh. Theologians say our three enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now what does it mean that our own flesh is our enemy? Well, the Bible indicates that we continue to battle our own sin even after we are saved. In Romans chapter 7, a man as mature and great in the faith as the Apostle Paul said, the things that he wanted to do, he didn't do. The things that he didn't want to do, he did. Who will deliver me from this body of death, he asked. So Paul understood that until the day that he died, he was in a pitched battle with his own flesh. He says so in Romans 8, 13. He says, For if ye live after the flesh, you shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. Now that verb mortify is one we're not very familiar with today. In fact, um, to mortify in our vernacular means to embarrass thoroughly. You might say if you have a cultural faux pas, I'm mortified. I'm deeply embarrassed. But the root word is a lot harsher than that. To mortify means to put to death. And Paul says we should not pet, we should not feed, we must kill the deeds of the flesh. He says it again in Colossians 3, 5. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. And then he lists some of those sins we're to put to death. Fornication, uncleanliness, inordinate affection, evil conspicuousness, covetousness, which is idolatry. But we all know by experience that fighting our own sin is hard. And sometimes it's easier just to give in and say we'll do better next time. And this is similar to the laziness that uh, the Manassites had. They were unwilling to take the land that God had given them. They just wanted some easier land to take. And we can be guilty of spiritual laziness when we stop doing battle with our sin. It's often been said that you have as much closeness to the Lord Jesus as you desire. And that's really true. The Lord is not hiding His will from us. In fact, in Revelation, He's speaking to Christians. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's wanting intimacy. He's wanting fellowship with us. But because He's so holy, we will not have intimacy of fellowship with the Lord Jesus if we have unconfessed and undealt with sin in our life. If we stop, in other words, mortifying the deeds of the flesh. But there's a second reason 
Not only do we stop fighting our sin because it's hard, it's because sin is pleasurable. We enjoy having it in our lives. Just as the Manassites enjoyed having the Canaanites to fetch their wood, we enjoy the pleasures of sin even after we are saved. In fact, every time we sin, what we are in effect saying is that we enjoy the pleasure of sin more than we enjoy the intimacy we have with Christ. Because intimacy with Christ and sin are mutually exclusive. They are like oil and water. They cannot exist in the same place. And so to the degree that we put to death our sin, that is the degree to which we'll have intimacy with Christ. But we love our sin. And I would uh, just say this to you parents out there. Don't try to tell your children that sin is not pleasurable. They're smarter than that. Sin is pleasurable. What you need to tell your children over and over is that intimacy with Christ is superior than any sin. We are studying here on Wednesday evenings through the book of Hebrews. We've just started that study. And I would encourage you, if you need a Bible study on Wednesday night at 6 o'clock, right here in this room. But we've already seen the theme of the book of Hebrews, and it's on every page of every chapter, is that Christ is better. That is what the author of Hebrews hammers home on nearly every verse. Jesus is superior than anything else. And what we need to tell our children and grandchildren and the person in the mirror every morning is that Jesus is superior than any pleasure sin could afford. Sin is pleasurable. There in that book of Hebrews that I just referenced in chapter 11, there is a reference to the life of Moses, who was a man of faith. You remember that Moses, when he was a baby, was placed into the Nile River in a little basket because Pharaoh was seeking to kill the Hebrew boy children. Pharaoh's own daughter fetched Moses out and raised him as her own. But listen to this, Hebrews eleven twenty four. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather than to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasure of sin. That is the choice each of us makes every day, multiple times of day, is whether or not to enjoy the passing pleasure of sin or to endure hardship with the people of God. And if you don't hear anything else I'm saying today, I am calling you to believe as a lifestyle that intimacy with Jesus, with Jesus is superior than any sin you can think of. And this is the message of Joshua chapter 17. But unfortunately, sometimes we become complacent and we stop fighting our sin. That leads me to my second point, the symptoms. If we're going to cure this sin of complacency, we have to know its symptoms. The first is pride. Look at what it says in verse 14. Then the sons of Joseph spoke to Joshua saying, Why have you given me only one lot and one portion for an inheritance, since I am a numerous people? King James says a great people. Their argument is we deserve more for two reasons. One is we're great. And number two, because God has been blessing us up to this point. And we'll get to that one in just a second. The first one is pride. We're a great people. Now, that is not in question. They had multiplied greatly. And what is also not in question, that the Lord had thus far blessed them. That was true enough. We said last week, if you have air in your lungs and a beat in your pulse, it's because of the Lord's mercy. The Lord has blessed all of us here. But 
the proper response to God's blessing is not pride, it's humility. It's not to say, I must be pretty special because look at all the blessings the Lord's given me. It ought to be, I am a sinner worthy of nothing but God's wrath and His grace is amazing. But here's what can happen. It can happen to individuals, it can happen to churches, is that when we are blessed continually over a long period of time, we develop, rather than a sense of gratitude, a sense of entitlement. That nothing bad should ever happen to us because we're the Lord's little favorites. Let me get very personal with you. I have four children. And it has not been too many decades ago that the worry that the Sanders family had was, would we have enough? There were some, for my mother and dad, especially growing up, some Christmases where they got some hard candy and orange. That was their entire Christmas. We don't have that worry anymore. Do you know what I worry much more about my four children? That life's going to be so easy and that they're going to have so many material possessions that they are going to fall into the temptation of the Manassites to develop a sense of entitlement. That I deserve this. And it will not prepare them for real life. And we all know that real life is not easy, is it? It's hard and that people are not going to line up giving them goodies for the rest of their life. And so we have to hold back and hold our children accountable and not give them everything that they want lest they develop this sense of entitlement. This can happen not only in the hearts of children, it can happen into Christians. I sometimes sense it in my own heart and it can happen to an entire church. The title of this message, as I said, is The Danger of Corporate Complacency. That is, collective complacency. It's bad enough when one person gets it, but let it spread to all the people and you've got a real problem. That's what had happened. All the Manassites said, we're God's favorite. They're not the only one who thought that. In the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, we are introduced to seven churches, one of which is the church at Laodicea. And do you remember what Jesus had to say to the church at Laodicea? By the way, they thought that they were God's little favorite. He said, you think that you are rich, increased with goods, and in need of nothing. But I say to you that you are poor, miserable, blind, and naked. They had arrived at a point where they were spiritually complacent. Look what we have. God must be pleased with us. Now, let me get even more personal. I read to you a couple of weeks ago from this pulpit an excerpt from our church's historical archives. Remember about the church about to burn down and the water tower fell and put it out? Well, the, the article right before that one was the paragraph that said the church had a real difficult time paying the pastor's salary of $50 a month. And we laughed at that, but it was really true. In the 1930s, they had to scrape and claw and sometimes were unable to pay the pastor's salary at $50 a month. Well, thankfully, we have been blessed greatly financially over the years in this church. And we paid off the debt last March. We celebrated that as we should. Thank the Lord for that. As you know, we have a large, competent, full-time staff here. We have streamlined ministries going in every direction. We have beautiful, comfortable facilities. And I'm, I'm grateful, aren't you, for all of those blessings. But because we have been blessed so much, especially in recent years, we face a huge temptation, I fear, and that is to grow complacent, 
to stop taking territory for the Lord. That is to lean on our own understandings and rest on our laurels. And you know I'm not talking about numbers or statistics. I think the worst measure of a church's health are often statistics. But I'm talking about the temptation to put our church on autopilot and coast to the finish line. We talked about a man, Caleb, last week at 85 years old, refused to coast to the finish line. Well, our church is coming up on 150 years old. And we must, with Caleb's steadfastness, refuse to coast to the finish line. I mentioned Brother Jimmy Draper's book, Don't Quit Before You Finish. One of the things Brother Jimmy says in that book, and I've heard him say it many times from the pulpit, is that when you stop making effort to advance, you will always retreat. He said, you never drift upstream. What he means by that is when you put it in neutral, it's not just that you stop making progress, it is that you will start going backwards very quickly. That's what I am speaking of here when I speak of corporate complacency. Well, it's not all bad news. We certainly need to know what causes it. We, we need to know that it's when we get satisfied with where we are. Uh, we need to know its symptoms, which are often pride and a sense of entitlement, but most importantly, we need to know the cure. When we see it or sense it in our own lives or in the lives of our people, how should we address it? Because here, here's the truth. I expect the tribe of Manasseh was not aware that they were drifting. I think they thought they were doing fine. In fact, they came to, to Joshua not to say we're tired, to say we want more land. They weren't saying we're, we're stopping taking territory. Yet, practically speaking, that's exactly what they have done. Look what he says. Why have you given me only one lot and one portion of inheritance? But that's not really what they meant. What they really were saying is, why have you given me a lot that's so hard? Why don't you give me some more land in which there aren't these Canaanites? Give us more land that we don't have to work for. And I think Joshua has one of the greatest responses in all the Bible right here. He says, if you are a numerous people, <laughs> I think tongue firmly in cheek. What he's really saying is, since you're such a great people, why don't you go up to the forest and clear a place for yourselves there in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephium, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. <laughs> you already have plenty of land, but there's trees on it, and you don't want to work hard to cut them down. And there's some tough people up there, and you don't want to fight them. We're not going to give you any more until you are good stewards of what you have. Does that sound familiar? I, I saw this every day of my life when I was a seminary student. I'd, I'd get with other students and, and they'd talk about how they were going to serve the Lord when they got out of seminary in three years and they were praying for the Lord to give them a great ministry and a great church. Come Sunday morning, they sleep in. They're not even involved in a local church. They're not using their spiritual gifts in any way, and yet they expect when they get a degree to take it to God and say, now, give me some more. Why in the world would God give us any more if we're not using what we have? That is a simple application of this scripture, and it's a great response from Joshua. If I could summarize it in three words, here's what Joshua said to the Manassites. Go to work. There was no shortage of need they had everything they could possibly need. They had plenty of land, and yet it had to be cleared of trees. 
It had to be cleared of, of the Canaanites. Their task was clear. Not only is there no shortage of need, friends, in the world today, there's lost people everywhere. There is no shortage of provision for the Christian walk. We just read from Ephesians 6, he's given us the whole armor of God. Didn't even mention the helmet of salvation. And we have that one offensive weapon, which is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. We have everything we need to live a victorious Christian life. In fact, in Ephesians 1.3, Paul says this, we have been given every spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. Every spiritual blessing. There's not one thing we could possibly need that God has not made provision for, for us to live this Christian life. And what we need is not more blessings. What we need is to steward the blessings we have through labor. Clear the land. As I was reading that text this week about clearing that land, my mind went back to my boyhood, to a gentleman in our church in Northeast Arkansas named Wayland Doak. Mr. Doak's been dead for a number of years, but he was the first farmer that I ever worked for. And when I was just 12 or 13 years old, he used to come pick me up on Saturday morning and we'd go clear fence throws, but uh, I didn't know it at the time. I didn't get, I was not a great worker, I'm sure at 12 years old, but, but he was investing in me. He was a godly man. He, he was a superintendent of schools there had retired. And by the way, here's how godly he was. The story is told that when he retired, they replaced the carpet in his office because he had worn two holes where his knees were knelt in prayer over those students every morning. But he didn't start out as a superintendent of schools. He started out as a humble teacher. He and his wife both. By the way, Miss Madeline Doak is still alive. Mr. Doak was born in 1910. I believe she was born in 1912. She's still alive. Godly people. But as Mr. Doak and I were, were riding in the truck one day, he told me about how he bought his first farm. By the way, at this point, he has several thousand acres of prime, rich farmland in the, in the Mississippi Delta of Arkansas. And he said that uh, he and his wife, Madeline, decided when they first got married is that they were going to sacrifice tea and coffee. They were only going to drink water in their home until they saved for a down payment to buy a little piece of land. And they did that for several years. They made the down payment. And then he cleared the land himself. Never been cleared. So he'd teach school all day. He'd come home, sharpen his ax, go out and chop wood till it was too dark to see. And then on the Saturday, he took a team of mules and pulled stumps. And he did that week after week, year after year, until he cleared that little farm. And then he was a good steward of that farm, and that turned that farm into a second farm. And by the time he retired, he had several thousand acres of, of prime land. Now, why would I tell such a story? Well, it's very similar to what uh, Joshua told the, the Manassites to do. The land was there, but it required them to make sacrifices, and it required them to clear the land and to work hard before they enjoyed the results. This church, First Baptist Church of Keller, was built by a previous generation. We inherited all of this. We inherited, many of us, this sweet sense of unity we have here. We inherited these wonderful facilities. And by the way, many of those people, like Mr. Doak, were hardworking farmers. We stand on their shoulders today. But today, times are good. 
the economy is doing well. We've paid off our debt, and we have a great temptation right in front of us, and that is to begin to believe our own press releases that we're God's little favorite. We are not. We are people who've been saved by grace, who have an incredible privilege of serving the Lord Jesus right here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Now, Galatians is the text of many of your Sunday school classes today. One of my favorite verses is from Galatians 6, 9. And let us not be weary in doing what is right. For in due season we will reap if we faint not. Let me say it one more time. I say it a lot. I don't know if you, you, you get it yet. There is a heaven. This ain't it. We are to work using our spiritual gifts and all the resources the Lord has provided until we die or till the Lord Jesus calls us home. And just as we said to our senior adults last week, don't quit when you get to be 65 or 75 or 85. Let me say to First Baptist Church of Keller, don't quit when you get your debt paid off. Don't quit when your church celebrates 150 years of anniversary. Don't quit when you hire wonderful, skilled ministers in every area of the church. That's not the time to quit. That's the time to work harder. Because we do have all of these blessings. Let us work the works of the Lord until He says it's over. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You for Your Word. And it is a sharp word today. It's one I needed to hear. Father, I, I sense in my own heart sometimes a complacency that is frightening. Father, I pray that You would, by Your Word, warn us today that it's not time to quit. It's time to work harder. We believe days are short until Jesus returns, which means that we should have a sense of urgency to share with as many as possible before it's everlasting too late. Father, we know that uh, we are not deserving of any of your blessings. We are simply trophies of your grace and daily beneficiaries of your mercy. So Father, I pray as a church family, we would never grow complacent, that we would not grow weary in doing what is right, but instead, we would run hard to the finish line and all the way through it, for Jesus' sake, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.